Hello everyone, this is David Thackeray. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. This uh, Today's episode is an interview that I did at the Southwest Conference in Las Vegas um, in the spring, this past spring. It is uh, with uh, Bailey Pryor. He is a owner of the uh, Real McCoy Rum. He was, a, and I guess it still is to an extent, the um, uh, documentary filmmaker. It was in the process of uh, making the uh, a documentary about rum and rum runners that he ca- fell in love with uh, the idea of rum and the many variations of it and the history and uh, started uh, his own rum company and rum label, I should say. Um, so here's the interview. I hope that you enjoy it. It's meant to be very, uh, meant to be uh, educational. This was a, a seminar that we had uh, there um, essentially, this is like, uh, I want to say maybe 80% of the information that was in the seminar. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, enjoy it. Hello everyone. I'm here in Las Vegas at the, uh, United States Bartenders Guild Southwest Conference. I am with a guest that is a Rum guy, um, what's your name and what do you do? So my name's Bailey Pryor and I'm the founder of The Real McCoy Rum. I, I came into this um, as a, I'm a documentary filmmaker is what I normally do. And, and so I produce documentary films for PBS and Discovery Channel. And it was while I was making a movie for PBS about the rum runners of the Prohibition era that I came up with the idea to start this rum company. And so, you know, my rum is based on the story of Bill McCoy, who was the first rum runner of the Prohibition era. And he was the first guy to fill up a boat full of rum in January of 1920 down in the Caribbean. And then he sailed it up to New York City and acted as a floating liquor store three miles offshore. And that was not illegal back in 1920 because three miles out was international waters. So even though you could see the Statue of Liberty, he wasn't breaking the law. So people would come out at night in their boats and they would party with him out there. They'd raft up alongside and there were times when there were a hundred boats out there and people brought out bands and they brought out food and they had a great time it was called rum row and so he became very famous and especially he became famous for never cutting the alcohol with anything so he in in those days during prohibition people would put turpentine wood alcohol prune juice water you name it to stretch the alcohol and those those products got nicknamed booze and hooch and rot gut that's where those nicknames came from McCoy never did that, so they called his product The Real McCoy. That's pretty much why we know that phrase today. So while I was making the movie, I saw these photographs that he and his crew had taken on the deck of their ship, and I used them in the film. And in one of the pictures, you can see barrels of rum in the background on the dock and on the deck of his boat, and they they say um, they have a custom stamp on the top of the barrel that says Barbados Rum. So I knew he was getting his rum from Barbados. So I flew down there and met with the head of the National Archive and showed her the pictures. And she said, it's got to be, I said, I'm looking for the original distillery that he was buying from. Can we, do you know who this might be? And she said, I have no idea. But from the look of it and the time period, I would think it would be the Foursquare Distillery, the Seal family, because they're the oldest, you know, most well-known rum exporters of the time period. So they're probably the ones that were exporting in 1920. Um, it's a very small island, Barbados, you know, not a lot of people there, and especially 1920, very small business, very small industry. 
So I thought it might have been um, another brand, Mount Gay. And I went and met with the owners of Mount Gay, and Frank Ward told me, you know, it definitely wasn't us. We weren't exporting till 1957, so it would have to be the, I would assume it would be the Seal family is what he told me. So I went and talked with Richard Seal, who's the fourth generation. His great-grandfather started the company. And I told him the whole story and said, look, I just want to find, you know, I'm looking for a rum from you guys that would have been the same type of rum that Bill McCoy would have had from Barbados in 1920. And he said, oh, well, that would be a very unique and different kind of rum in America because there wouldn't be any added sweeteners to it. Nobody was adding sweeteners till the 1940s and 50s. And the reason why is because they weren't using the multi-column still until that time. That's when that device really came in, and it doesn't make a very flavorful product. So they, people would add sugars and wines, muscatel and things like that to make the rum more interesting. So he said, we wouldn't do that. We'd make it with pot still and a blend of, of the two columns still that he has. And that's how we started the Real McCoy Rum. And so that just that whole story was so exciting to me. It took me five years to make the documentary film. And in the end, the, um, the, I brought it to the distributor, to PBS, and they loved it. And they decided to put it on the air, and it won five Emmy Awards. Wow. which was amazing and um, I didn't have any money to make the movie because when I first brought it to them and I said you know hey I want to make this film about the prohibition guys and he said they said we don't we're not really interested but I love the idea so I just used my own money and so I wrote it and directed it and edited it and I filmed it and, you know I shot it I was the cameraman and I was the producer I had to do everything because I didn't have the, the budget so I ended up getting nominated in all five of those categories, and we ended up winning in all five of those categories. It was crazy. <laughs> so I had to go up to the, on stage five times and give a speech. I thought there was no way I was going to win any of this, but uh, it was a pretty wild night. So, you know, I was really excited. I was really, oh, sorry. We're recording a podcast. Sorry about that. So, uh, <laughs> so I was really excited about the idea of taking um, all this history and this great story and this really beautiful rum that Richard Seals' family was making and, and turn that into something that I could you know, generate as a new brand, as the real McCoy rum. So, um, so we moved forward with it, and it was, that was the beginning of the whole process for me. So you mentioned uh, Richard Seal and uh, Foursquare Distillery. Um, who is he? Uh, what is, his, what is uh, so special about this particular distillery and the style of rum that he has uh, been producing? So it was a, a really interesting opportunity for me to get to know Richard and to learn from him. He's a really brilliant guy, and he has become you know, pretty much the biggest name in, in authentic rum today. You know, he's not about marketing. He's about tradition, and he's about transparency and clarity of what's in these products and how they're made, and trying to help sort of people understand the, the traditions and the, and the styles and the way things are really done in the world and, of, of rum. So he's become hugely influential in the, in the industry, and people who know rum know Richard Seal. So I had the great opportunity to work with him over the last, you know, I don't even know how long it's been now, 10 years or so, doing, um, doing all this and learning all about rum from him. And that, as a researcher for my documentary films, I, I'm, I geek out on these things. So I went and did a, 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 some time on the island of Martinique and learned about rum agricole from rum Clement, rum JM, rum Nissan, the master distillers and blenders at those places. I went to Scotland and, and I took a, uh, an apprenticeship at the Ballandalloc Distillery in Scotland. And with Richard, what Richard's been teaching me over the years, I've learned a lot about distillation, fermentation, maturation, and blending. So for me personally, it's been really interesting to, you know, spend 10, 11 years now, I guess it is, to, uh, to researching all of this stuff and really understanding. And Richard was a huge part of that. So then what should be the conversation on rum? Uh, how, we, how should we be referring to it? Um, and 
what are the changes that you see in the uh, for the future of rum? So that's what led me into thinking about you know rum in general and the future of rum. And what's really interesting to me is that you know we discuss rum today in very strange terms. You know we we call rum like everybody refers to rum as light and dark and gold and things like that. And that's completely erroneous, right? It doesn't matter, like, what's in that glass has nothing to do with its color. Like, how much food coloring you put in a rum doesn't have anything to do with where it was made, how it was made, what the raw materials were, what's the tradition or history behind it. You don't know anything about it. You just know it's light or dark. Like, do we have dark whiskey? You know, (laughs) do we have light cognac? You know, of course not. These are sort of bizarre marketing conventions that have happened in the rum industry for some strange reason. So the other thing about rum is that, that rum is very fun, and people have, the brand owners, have kind of pushed in that fun direction in a way that I think is, is sort of um, deteriorating a little bit the quality um, perception of rum. You know, people talk about sea monsters with their rum. They name their rum after sea monsters and aliens and pirates <laughs> and, yeah. you know, um, one guy names his rum after a chair, you know, and there's a cannonball, and, you know, like, what, what? Is there cannonball whiskey? You know, do we have, like, the finest cognac that's named after a chair? You know, no, we don't have that. It's kind of ridiculous. So I want to talk about, you know, a real conversation about rum, where we're talking about tradition and history and, and process and technique and culture and raw materials and sort of geek out on that stuff, and that's what I love to do. So on my website, realmccoyrum.com, I keep all these videos that I produce, and you can watch all these things and talk about that and learn more about the reality of how rum is really made. And there's lots of people out there, uh, you know, trying to talk about it in this way. So there's sort of a new groundswell about this now. But 10 years ago, nobody was talking about rum like this. We were all just talking about rum and, I mean, about light and dark and aliens and sea monsters. So what what I see from my research into this is that there's a, there's a perception challenge with most consumers that most people don't know the difference between pot and column stills. They don't understand the difference between batch process and continuous process. So you really have to look at the whole process. You know, batch process means that you have a slow fermentation where you take your sugar source, like in our case molasses, and you put some water on on it and you blend those two together and then you add some yeast and the yeast consumes the alcohol. I mean I'm sorry, consumes the sugar and it excretes alcohol and CO2, and that's how you get a wine, right, a molasses wine. And this is the same for beer, wine, spirits, everything starts this way. And then you put it into a still, and the still extracts the alcohol by, by heating it up and having the alcohol vapor just go out of the, out of the uh, pot and into the condenser and, and turn back into a liquid. So it's a very simple way of explaining how distillation works. You just extract the alcohol. So a multi-column still or a single-column still, like a Creole still or a two-column coffee still that's like 1890s technology, those will all do the same thing. They'll just do it more efficiently than a pot still. So pot stills will generate a very heavy spirit with tons of flavor and tons of aroma. And for some people, that's too much. They don't like it. And if you've ever tried a Jamaican pot still rum, big, hefty Jamaican pot still rum, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's more of like a purist thing or somebody's really an you know, avid rum lover. But on the other end of the spectrum is the multi-column still, and that makes this incredibly light spirit. It doesn't have a lot of flavor, it doesn't have a lot of aroma, and it's very close to a vodka, which is like completely neutral. So you can get you know, light and, and heavy rums, and you can blend them together, and that's what we do. We have a two-column coffee still and a 1,750-liter and a, uh, a 
copper pot still with a double retort. And what that means is one device, the pot still makes really heavy rum, and the two-column coffee still, the old 1890s technology, that comes out with a lighter style of rum. So we blend those two together and you get this really beautiful balanced rum. So it's also known as blended rum, all from a single estate. So we call our rum single blended rum. So tell us a little bit about the different process of uh, distillation uh, that you have learned in, in studying uh, rum and the different uh, process. And um, what is different about uh, what they do at Foursquare? So there's a lot of different kinds of rum. Um, there's rum that's spelled R-H-U-M, also known as rum agricole, which come from the French islands like Martinique and Guadeloupe. And I did a little apprenticeship on the island of Martinique for about five weeks. And I learned the techniques of the, the French AOC-regulated rums, uh, the rum agricoles. And they have a really interesting technique for their fermentation. What they do is they, they've recognized that, that when you cut down a stalk of sugarcane, a single stalk, right, inside this giant stalk of sugarcane is a lot of liquid, you know, the sugarcane juice. And if you cut down that stalk and you just let it lay there in the sun at 85 degrees in the Caribbean and, you know, 60, 80% humidity every day, that will spoil in about six to eight hours. Just like if you left a jug of orange juice in the bright sunlight all day long, that would also spoil. So the guys that are making the rum agricole recognize this, so they'll only harvest in a day what they can process through their, through their fermenters in a day. So they'll cut it down, they'll crush the stalks, and they'll extract that juice by crushing the stalks. Then they take that juice and they put it in the fermenter tank and they add water and they add yeast and they begin fermentation. So what they're typically not doing is going in with these gigantic harvesters and in one day harvesting the entire you know thousand acres that they have. So that's the difference. If you're, if you're making a fine rum agricole, you'll cut down much smaller batches and, and not let the juice spoil before you've even gotten into the fermenter. And the reason why they do this, the re reason why this is important is because You know, people forget this when they think about distilled spirits. Everybody stampedes to thinking about the still. But the reality is you get about 70% of your flavor profile from the fermentation. So if you do a bad job of fermentation, that those bad flavors, those off notes, are going to persist all the way through. So if you've spoiled your sugarcane juice by letting it sit in the sun too long, it's going to be highly acidic. It's going to be sulfuric. It's going to smell like rotten eggs. You're never going to get rid of that rotten egg stench in your beautiful rum. So you kind of have to throw that batch away. And, the, you know, so that's what they don't want to do. So they're very, very careful about how they do that. And you end up with these beautiful products. Now, by comparison, um, the folks who work not with sugarcane juice but with molasses are typically like the, the Anglophile, the English islands like Jamaica and, Bar and Barbados um, and, the, and the Spanish islands, you know, Haiti and, and, and um, you know, the other islands in the, in the Caribbean. So... Uh, or sorry, not Haiti, um, uh, but, but, but the, the Spanish islands, you know, like the, the Dominican Republic and places like that. So with those particular products, you're making your product um, out of molasses-based or a sugarcane syrup, which is just basically a watered-down molasses slightly. And what you have now is a, a lot of minerality in that. The way you get this molasses is you cut down those sugarcane stalks, just like the French agricole guys. You crush the stalks, you extract the juice, and you boil that juice down and make refined sugar. And the leftover detritus, what's left in the bowl after you've boiled down and made all this crystal sugar that you sell to people to put in their coffee, that leftover byproduct is called molasses. And it's got all this great minerality. There's still a lot of sugar in it. Um, it's got really interesting flavor notes. 
And so you take that stuff and you put that in a fermenter vat and you add your water and you add your yeast and it will do the same thing as if you were doing it with the sugarcane juice. The difference is that the sugarcane juice hasn't, um, or, or has persists all of the notes that you'll find, the flavor notes that come from sugarcane, which is a grass. So rum agricole has a very vegetal and grassy aftertaste. That's why, because it's from the, the unadulterated or the unmodified juice. But when you get to the molasses, that's been boiled down and basically charred a little bit, caramelized. That's why it turns the black, the black color of molasses. And that process basically concentrates it and makes it feel more sugary and more similar to a sugar at that point. Um, and so you get very different flavor notes from that raw product than the sugarcane juice. Okay, so then uh, what about Foursquare? What's different about the, their process and uh, what they're doing? So the process at Foursquare Distillery is that Richard Seal begins with molasses, and uh, he buys molasses from the island because there's lots of people growing um, you know, sugarcane all over the island. There's a factory on the island that makes sugar. Um, but he also buys molasses from, from the nation of Guyana. And so he'll take Guyanese molasses and he'll take Barbados molasses and he'll use those as the raw material to begin the process. And the reason why is because they're very similar. Um, he, he, he can control and he understands exactly what he's getting, number one. Um, and number two, they're, they're very similar uh, uh, raw material products. So they, they taste very similar. So he works with those and it works well for him. And he'll put that in the fermenter vat. He'll do the fermentation just like any, anybody making a rum. But the thing that he does slightly differently than most is that he's got a, a, um, a 1,750-liter copper pot still with a double retort. And the double retort look like two copper um, buckets, and they're about the size of a large trash can each. And so those buckets he fills up with the heads from his fermentation, which are the first part of the, the material that gets fermented. I'm mean, sorry, uh, distilled, the first stuff that gets distilled. So these, these act as a, a vapor barrier, uh, or a liquid a barrier for the vapor. Let me try that one again. I'm, I'm kind of falling apart on that. So what, what, he, ha what he does is he takes the, um, uh, he's got his 1,750-liter copper pot still, and it's got two retorts attached, and they act as plates that cause the, the, the distillate to lighten up a little bit. So he'll, he'll distill in the copper pot, and, and it will have a really beautiful, robust flavor and a really deep aroma, a very, very nice product. And then he's also got a two-column coffee still that was invented by Enos Coffee in the 1870s and perfected around the 1890s. And so that particular device makes a much lighter still, or much lighter rum, and it's the same process essentially, um, but it's a continuous process versus the pot still, which is a batch process. So he takes the heavy batch pot still, he takes the light continuous column still, and he blends those two together and then ages it. And that's how um, you know Richard's process is on a, on a basic scale. So you mentioned that uh, the way that rum is referred to is inaccurate and, and essentially incorrect because you're talking about light and dark and, you know, there's um, terms that don't give you information that directly uh, reflects the process by which, it was made, by which it was made. So can you talk a little bit about that? So the, the interesting thing about... Um, Rum is classification, right? So we have these kind of ridiculous terms that we're looking at, the way we discuss rum today, light and dark, right? And they're meaningless. And so there's, a, there's an effort out there to try to classify rum so we can talk about all these important things, the history, the culture, the tradition, you know, what's really in the glass, not what 
some sea monster that it's named after, right? So, and when you do this, when you do it this way, it allows you to um, really begin to respect rum and understand rum. And now you'll realize that rum, you know, that not all rum is the same. And lots of people just think, well, rum is rum, and it's definitely not. It's like saying whiskey is whiskey. There's a vast range of whiskey. There's fine, beautiful Scotch whiskeys that are selling for twenty-five thousand dollars a bottle because they're so unique and well-made and interesting and sought after. And the rum is exactly the same way. It has all the same attributes. And just a lot of people don't know that. So what we're trying to do is build a bridge to understanding this. So there, uh, Richard Seal and another gentleman named Luca Gargano at, at Velier in Italy have developed this really beautiful um, but very complex classification on rum that talks about pure single rum and single blended rum and, and, all, and certain things like that. And I've found that that can be a little too complicated for the average consumer. So they kind of only have like both ends of the spectrum and nothing in the middle. They've either got light and dark or they've got single blended and pure single and they don't know what those terms really mean yet. So what I've come up with is a bridge that gets you from silly light and dark to very complicated single blended rum. And How do we get there? It's really easy. The way to talk about rum is not light and dark. You should talk about rum as aged versus unaged and modified versus unmodified. And what that means is, if you have a fine pot still rum, it's very expensive to make this. It's very hard to do this and takes real craftsmanship and should be respected. This is a very difficult art, art form. So fine rum made in a pot still and aged for long periods of time is extremely valuable. And that's the kind of stuff, if you're a, a real connoisseur of rum, you, you're willing to spend your money on because it really is worth it and it's absolutely beautiful stuff out there just like with scotch whiskey and the $25,000 bottles. Rum's nowhere near that so it's a much better value but you get the point. And then there's big industrial rum and that's the vast majority of rum that you see out there and that's typically made in large factories and they can bang out hundreds and thousands of cases a year. I'm sorry, 150,000 cases a, a day in some cases. So they're making millions of cases a year in some of these places. And their goal is to, is to make a quality product, make a consistent product, but do it super inexpensively so they can make a good profit. And that's kind of their goal. And So it's like the opposite of the artisan rum maker you know, in the Caribbean who's got this beautiful pot still and this deep tradition and they don't want to you know, mess with tradition, just like the Scots. Never mess with tradition in Scotland. So that's kind of the idea. So those multi-column still rums are inexpensive. They're very light in flavor. There's not a whole lot of complexity to that raw distillate. So they're less expensive. They're less valuable, right? So we're trying to give people an understanding of this. If you're going to make this super expensive high-end rum for in your pot still, you're not going to put a bunch of you know sugar adding and you're not going to add a bunch of co fake coloring and things like that but with that inexpensive stuff that's coming from the multi-column still you put sugar in it you put muscatel wines in it you'll put food coloring in it you'll do different things to make it emulate that pot still and and so that's kind of what's going on in rum and a lot of times the the whole discussion about aliens and space monsters and sea monsters and things like that is just to distract you and to call it dark instead of unaged you know, nobody wants to call their, their rum unaged, no aging. You I mean it's lived its whole life in a stainless steel container? That's not very exciting. But if it's been in this beautiful ex-bourbon barrel and it's got all these beautiful lignans and tannins and from the wood and there's a huge history and tradition to that, that's much more interesting. So this way it gives you a chance to understand the difference between, you know, a, an, an aged and um, uh, unmodified product versus an unaged product that has to be modified. So that's why we should be calling rum aged versus unaged and modified versus unmodified. 
Now, neither of those are right or wrong. They're just different techniques, different styles. But it's really important for the consumer to understand this so you know what you're paying for because you don't want to pay $200 for essentially you know, a super cheap rum with ink and sugar in it. And then somebody's trying to sell you the, uh, another rum that's an actual pot still rum, and it's actually aged for 10, 12 years, and it's actually made through real artisanry and craftsmanship. That is worth the $200. So you want to know the difference. And it's very, very hard to, to figure this out just by walking in a liquor store because most people just aren't even talking about it this way. They're just talking about light and dark. All right, y'all. So as you can tell, this is really geeking out on some rum, which is fantastic. I'm really enjoyed the conversation that I had with him. But before we finish it, I thought that I'd throw a little bit of music in here just to kind of let the brain relax a little bit. And then we'll finish off strong, which is going to be about another 10 minutes um, of the interview. So here's a little something to relax to. So there's, a, there's kind of a misunderstanding about regulation of rum, right? So in different countries, every, every just, well, most countries, rum is regulated, right? So you go to Jamaica, and it's highly regulated. It's only made a certain way. There's real rules in Jamaica. There's rules in Barbados. There's rules in the United States. You have to have a certain, you know, it's got to be made from molasses in the United States or sugarcane source. Um, it's got to be um, something that, that uh, you have to give a proper age statement. There's regulations that are the kind of thing that you must do to control and define it as a rum, as opposed to just being a neutral spirit or something like that. So, you know, most countries have 
real regulation of their spirits. The difference is that, like in the United States, and I think this is why people misunderstand it, they think, oh, well, they're, they're somehow allowed to put the oldest rum in the, in, in the barrel. Even if it's a blend of, of old and young rums together, they're, they're able to put the age statement on the bottle that is the older rum, and that's actually not true. You can't do that in, in the United States, even if they do it in whatever country it comes from. And so what you've seen are the people that are using the term Solera, they're kind of using that as a way to basically, you know, in, in, in certain ways misinform the public that what's really in this bottle. They're, people are assuming because it has a big number like a 21 or a 25 or a 23 on the bottle, they think it's 25 or 21 or 23 years old. And you'll go into liquor stores and it'll say 23 years old, 25 years old, right on the ticket, you know, where the price is. You go to the restaurant, you'll see it on the menu, 25, 21, 23 years old. But if you go to those producers and say, is this 100% 25-year-old rum in this bottle? Because that's the law in the United States for an age statement. It's got to be the, the youngest rum has to be displayed. So this is either 100% this is either 25-year-old rum or the youngest rum in this blend is 25. That's the law. And they'll say, no. It's, the, it's not. That's actually the oldest rum in this blend, and this is not an age statement that we've put on the bottle. This is a marketing term, and there's a huge difference between those two. An age statement in the United States, there's only two legal age statements. If your rum is five years old, the, 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 the two legal age statements are aged five years or five years old. That's the only language you can use. You can't say it's five-year rum. You can't say it's five-old rum. Those are marketing terms. Right? And that's the big difference. If you ever forget what the real age statement is, the legal age statement, look on any and every bottle of whiskey only says 12 years old. None of them say Solera. Have you ever heard of Solera whiskey? <laughs> Solera cognac? Of course not. Right? It's more of this rum shenanigans. So um, that's why the classifications are so important because you want to know that if this is a batch product and somebody went to all the trouble and expense to do this, you know, where it takes a full day to make in this in this pot still, what takes 10 minutes in that multi-column still, it's f 15 times more expensive to produce than what's in the multi-column still. Why would you lie to people about the age? Why would you add, why would you put, you know, sort of not so great Muscatel wines and why would you put sugar and why would you blend younger age stuff in there? If you took a, a rum that I made that was 20 years old and you put some two-year-old rum in it, I would hit you. Because <laughs> you're ruining my beautiful rum that is now outrageously expensive because we lose between 7 and 8% to evaporation every year in, wow. in the Caribbean. So at 12 years, we've lost 70% of the contents of the barrel. And that's not marketing. That's physics. There's nothing I can do about that. So if I want to make a, 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 like a 24-year-old rum, I would have to sit down 100 barrels, let them sit for 12 years. They'd all go down to 30%. It's physics. I can't do anything about that. There's only 30% left in those barrels. So I could top those up. I could you know, take all that 30% and put it all into th 30 full barrels now. And I'd let that sit for another 12 years. Well, they would all go down to 30% again. <coughs> and when they go down to 30% again, now I could top that up one more time and I'd have 10 full barrels. I started with 100 barrels. I allowed 90% of what I produced to evaporate into the wind with no economic benefit to me. There's absolutely no way I could sell you a 24-year-old rum for less than two or $300 a bottle. So, you know, that way, 
if you really look at this, you can start to decode rum really quickly. You can go into a restaurant or you can go into a liquor store and you can see a bottle that says 25 or 30 year old rum. And if that's 20 bucks, you absolutely know that's not real. There's absolutely no way. Now you could have slave labor and you could still never get it down to that cost. And, and that's because there's not that much labor involved in this. This is all about, this is all about aging and um, you know, real estate and security and things like that. That's what the costs are. Letting this stuff sit in a barrel doesn't need someone looking at it all day. You just lock it up in this building and it sits there for 10 years. So, but you've got to secure it and insure it and you're losing so much to the evaporation. So basically what you're looking for is a way to identify what the real rums are and that's the whole point of a classification. If the classification talks about light and dark, that's not teaching you what the real rum is. It's not showing you the difference of the culture and the history and the tradition, the technology, the expense of production, all the things that are important to you evaluating whether this has been adulterated or not and whether you should be paying this price or not. Why would you pay $200 for a rum that's nothing but a neutral spirit with ink and sugar in it that costs somebody 15 cents to make because they put it in a fancy bottle, right? Or pay $200 or pay $50 for a really nice aged pot still rum that is handcrafted, that's got real tradition and history, it's really made in a pot still and all those things, that's really worth it. And it will taste so much better. In fact, most people in the United States have never actually tasted real rum. They've tasted industrial rum with ink and sugar in it by the millions of cases, but they've never really had the chance unless you're, you really understand rum. So if you're a real rum fan, I'm sure you have tried some of these beautiful rums that I'm talking about, but if you're new to rum, you're just used to the big brands and the pirates and the bats and the sea monsters, right? And that's definitely not like the future of rum. That's the past. And people care about what they put in their body. Nobody wants hangovers from chemicals that are put in these things. And, and you don't want all this sugar either that they're putting in the rum. So when you go for the high end, the, the really the batch stuff, the beautiful stuff, the handmade <clears throat> stuff, that's really worth the expense and your time. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoy rum because I really do and I hope you can learn to appreciate it. It's a really beautiful thing. All right, so that was my interview with uh, Bailey Pryor. I hope that you enjoyed it and learned from it. Um, there's a lot of information. It's really geeky, but for those of you that are into rum, I think that it's uh, helpful to hear the process that he went through for over uh, a decade. Um in learning about different uh, spirits and traditions and um, the focus that he's had uh, on rum and and the classification for rum uh, that should be occurring. So that is that. The next thing I have is uh, next week, uh, there's an interview that I did back in January, I think it was, with uh, Marla Martinez. It's been one of those that has so much background noise you know, dog barking and music and all kinds of crazy stuff that um, I've been putting it off and off and off. So it's time to to do it. Uh, I think I got a pretty good handle on it. So that's next. As always, keep the conversation going. Uh, thank you for joining me. And uh, until next time.